turn to Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, as we'll be studying the church in Smyrna together this morning, continuing our Dear Church sermon series. And as you turn there, I have a question that I would like us to ponder together. What would make a person sacrifice their wealth, their property, their reputation, their health, even their life in the name of Christ? What would make a person make that sort of a commitment? We often recount incredible tales from around the world about martyrs who have died for their beliefs. We read stories from a magazine like Voice of the Martyrs and marvel at what we read and the suffering that Christians have gone through and are going through around the world. And we listen in awe and amazement. But if you're anything like me, you find yourself asking an additional question as well. Would I be willing to die for Christ? Not only what makes a person do that, but would I be willing to die for Christ? In the moment, would I be willing to give up everything I have in this life? My family, my friends, my future, to simply say that I love Jesus. When it would be so easy to say, I don't know that man, like Peter did. Have you ever wondered that to yourself? Would I be willing to say that? Would I be willing to do that? if that ever happened? See, in Smyrna, that's precisely what was going on. The people in Smyrna were being asked to give up their lives, to give up their fortunes, to give up their families, to give up their friends, to give up everything in this life to say that they love Jesus. And I want us to ask the question together this morning, would I be willing to do that too? Before we get into this text, Let's pray and ask for God's guidance this morning. Father, we've sung of the joys of when we get to heaven, celebrating Jesus together. Father, we know that that's entirely a work of your redemption on our behalf, of Christ's work on our behalf, and we celebrate that today. We recognize that we are a church simply because you have called us to follow you. Lord, this morning is a difficult message. It's a hard message for us to hear. It's one that is uh, maybe foreign to our ears. So we ask that in the same way that you spoke to Smyrna, that you would speak through your word to us today. Lord, that you would help us to be challenged by it, that you would help us to be encouraged by it. Lord, that ultimately you would be glorified in the fact that we can rest in the fact that you have the future in your control. Lord, guide us this morning as we study your word together. Guide me. Help it to be encouraging to your church. Use it for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me take a moment and review before we dive into this church in Smyrna, let you know where we're at. Again, we're moving through our Dear Church sermon series. Seven letters from Christ, the bridegroom, to seven churches in Asia Minor, the bride, written by John as he saw this vision on, a, on an island off the coast of Asia Minor. And in these seven letters, Christ gives seven messages to seven specific churches, including compliments to them for what they're doing right, 
corrections and concerns for where they need to be improved, and commitments to his church, promises of assurance. And I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to actually be adding an extra C in the message today. Um, I think that's still allowed. So I'm going to add an extra C. Keep an eye out for it. Last week with the church at Ephesus, we looked at how Christ wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus and said, you're doing so many things so well, but you've lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. On that subject, let me just recommend a couple of things that I forgot to mention in the message last week. A couple of books that if you found last week challenging to you, the first I would, I would recommend is A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. This one has been just absolutely bothering me lately as I've been reading it. And if you find yourself going, I think last week was speaking to me, I'd encourage that book. Or maybe this book by Alexander Strzok entitled Love or Die, it'd be a great one to go through with your small group Bible study. It's on exactly this passage from Revelation 2, 4. Um, I'd encourage either one of those as you go forward if you found last week's message challenging to you. But this week, we're going to be looking at Smyrna. We're going to be looking at Christ's second letter to Christ's second church. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's going to have the same outline as last week in Ephesus because all of these letters are built in much the same way. So we're going to see the letters address, who it's to, and who it's from in verse 8. Smyrna, we've already tipped our hand a bit there. Secondarily, we're going to see the letter's aim. What is the body of this letter seeking to tell the church? This is where we'll see compliments and some of those other things in verse 9 and 10. And then lastly, we'll see the letter's assurance in verse 11. What is the promise that Christ makes to this church, specific to this church, and how is that an encouragement to us today? So we're going to start out as we started out last week with the letter's address. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. Revelation 2 verse 8 reads this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He starts off by saying who this letter is to, to the angel of the church at Smyrna. What do we know about the church at Smyrna? What do we know about the city of Smyrna? Well, we need to note that it is both a wealthy and beautiful city. In fact, those that were living in Smyrna, I, I don't know if it's the Smyrnans, the Smyrnians, whatever, the, the people living in Smyrna used to refer to Smyrna as the first among the cities of Asia. Now, I'm not really 100% sure what that means, but I expect it's something kind of like calling your university the Ohio State, right? Nobody really knows what that means unless they attended the Ohio State. But somehow it means it's somehow special. So they, they refer to their city as the first among the cities of Asia. <clears throat> and this was probably due to its wealth and its beauty. It was an incredibly prosperous city. It was also an incredibly beautiful city because a few hundred years earlier it had been totally wiped off the map. And then someone had come along and they'd rebuilt the entire city. And so it was a planned city, much like Washington, D.C., where the roads were straight and the blocks were even and everything was laid out very straightforwardly. And they were proud of their city. We also need to note that in 26 AD, the, the, the city of Smyrna was given the, the right to build a statue to Tiberius, the Roman emperor. This was a huge deal for the people of Smyrna. And as a result, the city became kind of the center for the imperial cult, for those that would pledge their allegiance and, and loyalty to the emperor. As a result, it became difficult to live in the city of Smyrna unless you were willing to say, the emperor of Rome is Lord. Something that's going to become incredibly important as we look at the message to the letter or to the church at Smyrna. We also need to note that in this city, there was a large defensive population of Jews. There was a great number of Jews who enjoyed a privileged status as Jews in the Roman Empire. 
and they were extremely militantly opposed to the Christian believers in Smyrna. So Smyrna was a lovely city. It was a wealthy city, it contained, but it contained two major opponents to the Christians in Smyrna. And these are going to become incredibly important as we go on. The antagonistic Jews who hated the Christians in the city of Smyrna and the zealous Roman patriots who also hated the Christians living in Smyrna. And what do we know about the church at Smyrna? It's fascinating to note that this church, despite not having any criticisms given to it in this book, isn't noted anywhere else in Scripture. It comes up here, and it comes up in Revelation chapter 1, and that's about all we get. So we realize that this church was likely one of the smallest and least significant churches. It wasn't this massive, exciting church like the church at Ephesus. It was this largely underground, hidden church, but it was extremely faithful, as we'll see in just a moment. This is the church at Smyrna. This is the letter written to the church at Smyrna. But before we get to that, we know we also have to talk about who this letter is from. Look back at verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. We see the bridegroom Christ's self-description. And once again, he gives two specific descriptions for himself to the believers living in the city of Smyrna. Did you pick up on them? Two descriptions, he says, the words of the first and the last, and the one who died and came to life. This first and the last is a common expression. It's used in Revelation 1 verse 17 already. Look up a little bit higher to where Tom preached on a few weeks ago. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, although dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. It's also used at the end of Revelation in chapter 22 where Christ describes himself as, I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. He's borrowing from chapter 44, verse 6 of Isaiah and chapter 48, verse 12, where God describes himself as the first and the last. And so there's two really important things that we need to note from this description of Jesus. The first is this first and last idea is not just first and last, as we tend to think of it, but this expression meant, and everything in between. Not only am I the first and the last, but I am all comprehensive. I am totally in control of everything between the first and the last. Secondarily, this first and the last language is only used of the eternally existent God. Christ is expressly calling himself God here in chapter 2. There are those that would have us believe that Jesus didn't think of himself as God, that in the Bible he did not call himself God. And here we see another expression of Jesus saying, I am the first and the last, the only true God. What we see here is Christ's eternal preeminence. If you want to read up a little bit more on what that means, read Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20 this afternoon. It's a great expression of what it means for Christ to be eternally preeminent. But in addition to being the first and the last, we also see Christ describing himself in another way here. The one who died and came to life. He starts off his letter by reminding them of the gospel. To remind them of the hope that they have because Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He reminds them of the fact that everything they're going through, Christ went through before. He's going to tell them later in the, in the letter that some of them are going to be put to death, and he's saying Christ died first. 
He's not asking you to do something he hasn't already done himself. But in addition to that, he not only died, he came back to life. That's the hope. He's articulating the gospel. He's saying Christ died for our sins and was raised, confirming God's acceptance of his substitute on our behalf and defeating death once and for all. This is fundamental to the message that Christ is going to deliver to the church at Smyrna. They have to understand that Christ died for them and that he rose again and defeated death. In order for anything else later in the message to make sense, in order for anything else later in this letter to make sense, the believers in Smyrna had to understand that Christ went before them, that he died on their behalf, and that he was raised again. This is penal substitutionary atonement. This is what we place our faith in, Christ's work on our behalf. And Romans 6, verse 5 through 11 articulates this really well. Another one that you could read this afternoon. We don't have time to go into it this morning. So in addressing this church, in addressing this church that was under incredible persecution, under incredible pressure from the outside world, Christ reminds them of two things, and we need to remember them as well this morning. First of all, he reminds them that he is the all-powerful, eternally existent God, so nothing comes into their lives without passing through his loving hands first. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing comes into their lives without first passing through his hands. The church at Smyrna had to understand this. Secondarily, the church at Smyrna had to remember that Christ was their redeemer and the conqueror of sin and death. If Christ be not raised, we are above all people to be pitied. And he says to the church at Smyrna, if you're going to die for the name of Christ and Christ never came back from dead, that's pitiable. What a waste. But if Christ came back from the dead and has conquered sin and death, then there's hope. He reminds them of these two truths. He grounds what he's going to tell them to do, their behavior, in what they should believe about who he is, their Savior. And I think that gives us a couple of takeaways for us this morning. We've said we're going to ask three questions as we move through the series. How, or what are we to believe? How are we to behave? And then how do we endure as the church until Christ returns? On this theme of what do we believe, I think we need to take to heart what Christ is saying about himself. Individually first, as believers in 21st century Lincoln, Nebraska, we need to recognize that every tribulation, even death, that we experience in this life has been allowed by Christ. Now, I'm not saying that Christ is a source of evil. What I'm saying is that God, as sovereign over every event in our lives, has allowed challenges and persecution. But also, those challenges, those trials, those persecutions are temporary because of Christ's victory over the grave. Every trial, every tribulation, every challenge is temporary because of Christ's victory over the grave. We would do well to remember that. There are those out there that would express to you what they call open theism. God doesn't really know what the future holds. He's kind of just rolling the dice and playing the odds. He's not in control of what's coming. He just kind of orchestrates it a bit. That's absolutely, fundamentally not biblical. God knows what's coming. God has planned what's coming. 
including the hard things in our lives. And we have to change our perspective on those if we're going to see them the way that God sees them. Secondarily, as a church, corporately, what are we to believe? This is critical. Persecution cannot defeat Christ's church. Cannot. Either here in the United States or anywhere else in the world, persecution will not defeat Christ's church. And often, it is God's means of purifying his bride and advancing the gospel. We're not used to this. In the West, we haven't had to endure years of persecution as a church. But this is what Scripture teaches. This is who Christ reminds himself to the church at Smyrna that he is. As Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But we struggle with that. We're not used to persecution and pain. We're not used to having to lay it all on the line for the name of Christ. And so we need to be reminded as well that persecution cannot defeat Christ's church. And God uses it often to purify his church and advance the gospel. These things we have to keep in mind if we're going to understand what Christ commands the believers in Smyrna to do. We must remember what he's told them about who he is if we're going to accept what he tells them they need to do as a result. And so after the specific reminder, Christ shifts to the body of the letter, and he tells them what the aim of this letter is for the church at Smyrna. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He starts off by complimenting the church. He gives them two compliments, but he doesn't really do it in the way we expect them to do it. He says, I know your, and rather than works, to five of the seven churches, Christ's words are, I know your works. Here he says, I know your tribulation. He compliments the church in Smyrna by saying, I know what you're going through. Tribulation literally means affliction or distress. I know your struggles. I know your challenges. I know the pressure you are receiving from the outside community. And so he compliments them, ironically, and this is so strange to us, he compliments their poverty. Did you pick up on that? He commends them for being poor. Unless we misunderstand this, there's two words in the Greek language for poverty. There's one word that kind of the aristocrats would use of everybody else. It was, you were poor if you had to work for a living, right? If you couldn't just do whatever you wanted all day, you were poor. That's not this word. There's another word, and that word means destitute. It means unable to supply your basic needs on a daily basis. Smyrna was really poor. Smyrna was poor in a way that we don't even understand in the United States. And he contrasts them, ironically, here later in the summer, we're going to talk about the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was physically rich, but was spiritually in poverty. But to the church at Smyrna, he says, 
you're physically poor. You don't have your basic needs, but you are rich. He says, but you are rich. See, likely what was going on is the church at Smyrna was poor because of the oppression of the Jews and the pressure they were getting from the Roman emperor. They were doing, they were worshiping not the emperor, but Christ. And they lived in a city that was emphatic about their worship of the emperor. And if you didn't work through those channels, if you weren't part of those clubs, if you weren't part of the fraternity that pledged their allegiance to the emperor, nobody would do business with you. So likely the church at Smyrna was physically poor, not because they were in a poor city, it was an extremely wealthy city, but because no one in Smyrna would have anything to do with them because they claimed the name of Christ. But Christ says to them, you're poor on the outside, but you are rich. Clearly he means spiritually. Clearly he means this church had a spiritual wealth that was more important than their physical poverty. Much like Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, Jesus is having an interaction with his disciples. And this is after the rich young ruler has come and has said, what do I need to be saved? And Jesus says, just give away everything you have. And he goes away sad. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not because wealth is wrong, not because wealth is bad, but because it was an obstacle for him. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, we're not rich. Look, we've given up everything for you, right? Peter, classic Peter, right? <laughs> like, we gave up everything. And Jesus turns to them and says, yeah, you've given up everything in this life, but you haven't given up anything that won't be returned to you one day. No one has given up friends or family or things in this life that won't be better someday in heaven. Jesus reinforces exactly what he says here. You're physically poor because of my name, but you will not always be poor. You are spiritually rich. You are storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. So he compliments their poverty, which again sounds really strange to us in the Western world, where if we're poor, we assume God has somehow judged us. We're doing something wrong. But he also compliments their slander. Did you pick up on that? I know your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were false Jews, as Romans 2 would put it. They were Jews externally, but they weren't Jews in that they followed Christ in their hearts. And this is strong language. He says they are a synagogue of Satan. Literally, Satan meaning adversary. Some misunderstand this passage and they think it's anti-Semitism, that somehow John has something against the Jews. Well, there's two issues with that. Number one, John was a Jew. That doesn't make any sense. John was a Jew himself. But secondarily, it doesn't fit the context. <laughs> it doesn't fit the context. What he's saying is that these Jews have set themselves up as opposed to God's plans. They are adversaries to God's plans, much like Saul admitted he was prior to being changed into, changing his name to Paul and following Christ. He says these Jews are a synagogue of Satan. And what were they doing? They were slandering the Christians. They were saying all sorts of hateful, hurtful things because this group of people claimed to follow Christ, that guy who died on a cross. And likely it was to distinguish themselves to the Roman authorities. See, the Jews in the Roman world had kind of a special exception. Everyone else had to worship the emperor, and to not do so was to get in trouble and get, be put to death. 
But the Jews were kind of given this special exception where if you were a Jew, you could worship your religion the way you had without fear of persecution. And so as the first century went on, Christianity kind of hid under Judaism in the Roman Empire for a period of time, and then the Jews started saying, no, that's not us. The Roman authorities need to know they're Christians, they're not with us, because they didn't want to lose their special freedoms and privileges as Jews. And so the Jews in Smyrna would point out to the Christians, they would say, look, to keep the focus off of them and what they were doing, look, look at those Christians. They're not worshiping the emperor. Look at what they're doing. Let me give you six likely accusations. These are things that historians have read about were accusations that likely the Jews threw against the early Christians. And this was likely in Smyrna as well. I love this. Six things. Let's see if any of these have been said of you because you claim to be a Christian. Number one, they're cannibals. I kid you not. The Christians were accused of being cannibals. Why? Because they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They ate Christ's bread or blood or body and drank Christ's blood, and they twisted that, misunderstanding it entirely, and said, see those Christians? They're cannibals. They're eating people over there. I doubt you've been called a cannibal for following Christ. Secondarily, they called them sexual deviants. Why? Because of their, quote, agape feasts. In Jude, you'll read the terminology of love feasts. The Christians would get together to, to worship God and to love each other, and the unbelievers would look at them and they would say, see, look at that, they're having like some sort of crazy sex party there. This is ironic because the pagan worship of the day would have involved all sorts of sensuality. Have you been accused of being a sexual deviant because you follow Christ? Third, they were accused of being homewreckers. Because exactly because of Christ's words saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. A wife would accept Christ and the husband wouldn't. A child would accept Christ and the parents wouldn't. And they said they're breaking up families. They're messing with our whole society. They're homewreckers. They called them atheists. Now that's ironic. It doesn't hardly make sense to us today, does it? They called them atheists because they had no idols. They called them politically disloyal because they wouldn't worship the emperor, because they hadn't bought into the world system. And lastly, they called them arsonists, because they talked about hell so much. Anybody that talks about hell this much has got to be setting fire to things, right? If only the modern-day church could be accused of being arsonists because we taught so much on the doctrine of hell. Because we were clearer with what eternal separation from God means. They called them the cannibals, they called them sexual deviants, they called them home wreckers, they called them atheists, they were politically disloyal, and they were arsonists. And as a result, they slandered them to the point that nobody would want to touch them. Nobody wanted to be associated with those Christians in Smyrna. In fact, so zealous was the Jews' hatred of the believers in Smyrna that a, a, few, a few years later, a few decades later, in about 155 AD, we get the well-known martyrdom of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. And in this, as Polycarp says, I'm not going to renounce Christ, the magistrate says, well, we're going to send the animals on you. And he says, fine, send them. And he says, well, if you're not scared of the animals and the beasts, then we're going to light you on fire and we're going to burn you at the stake. And Polycarp says, that's what it takes to not deny Christ's name. And the Jews, the religiously zealous Jews, on the Sabbath, ran and got bundles of wood to burn Polycarp at the stake. 
That's how vehemently these Jews hated the Christians in Smyrna. They would break their Sabbath regulation to go get the wood to burn Polycarp at the stake. But Christ looks to this church at Smyrna, and he says, I know how difficult your situation is. I know what you're having to endure. I know your tribulation. I know the pressure you're under from the outside. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know how they're slandering you. And he compliments their spiritual vitality in all of that. Isn't that so classic of Christ's inverted kingdom? That the church that everyone on the outside would say they're poor, they're small, they're weak, they're losing, Christ says they are strong in spite of all of it. And we note that there are no concerns and there are no corrections for the church at Smyrna. The most persecuted church in the seven churches in Revelation, and Christ has no corrections for them. They are healthy. Though they are persecuted, they are healthy. But he does give them two specific comforts, two things that they need to remember as a healthy church in this difficult environment. Look at verse 10. He says two things to them. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer, and then at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. <laughs> to the church that's enduring incredible persecution, he says, more persecution is coming. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. What's about to happen? What are they about to suffer? He gives them what the future holds for them. Imagine sitting in the church at Smyrna and hearing this delivered to you. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may test it, be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. He gives them this prophecy. He says, imprisonment, testing, and tribulation is on its way. I know you're enduring incredibly hard things, and what the future holds is more hard things. It's a hard message to hear. If he hasn't reminded them of who he is and the fact that he holds the future in his hand, I don't know how you bear this sort of a message. And just in case we misunderstand, imprisonment here is not what imprisonment means today in the United States. It's not three square meals, a cot, and a TV. The Romans used prison imprisonment for three things. First, for torture, to get people to recant on their profession of faith. Second, awaiting their trial, much like the Apostle Paul as he was awaiting being tried in Rome. And third, awaiting their death sentence. This was not a cozy place to be, and it likely meant ending in their death, something we see later, endure to the point of death. Endure this trial, endure this testing, endure, he says, this tribulation for 10 days. Now, there's a tremendous amount of ink that has been spilled upon this little phrase, okay? For 10 days, you will have tribulation. The truth is, commentators are not 100% sure what he means here. He could mean literally 10 days. It's also not inconsistent with the book of Revelation to say 10 days as a period of time. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter. They're not more spiritual because they endure for longer or less spiritual because they don't, but he says tribulation, oppression, affliction, challenge is on its way. But the second encouragement to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death 
and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. This was a church that had already had their reputations slandered. This was a church that had already had their possessions taken away. This is a church that had already lost their jobs because they named the name of Christ. This is a church whose families had already rejected them, whose friends wouldn't talk to them because of the name of Christ. And he says, be faithful unto death. The only thing left that they can take from you is your life. But, and I will give you the crown of life. This incredible hope the church at Smyrna recognized that they didn't live for this world. They didn't live for today. They didn't live for the things they saw and the things they possessed. They lived for Christ's blessing. For Christ to one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. And his reward, his promise to them is the crown of life. Now, this is likely, there's a couple of different words for crown in the New Testament. One of them speaks to the royal crown, and that's not really the word we're talking about. Probably what we're talking about here is the athletic victor's crown. The Greek games, which took place in Smyrna as well as Ephesus, had a number of people competing for all sorts of things, similar to the Olympics today as we think of them. And the, the result, one of the things that the victor of the event got is a little woven wreath crown. It doesn't seem like much to us today, but it was hugely important to them. I don't know if you got advertising deals or what, but, but to have a crown meant you had reached the pinnacle of physical prowess in this community. And to them, he says, you will have a reward of the crown of life. So much more important than this wreath that people strive and work and labor for. He promised them the crown of life. He promises them eternal life. He promises them the heaven that we just sung about. To a church that was having everything in this world ripped away from them, their only hope was in the next life. So Christ tells this church that's enduring persecution and pressure and are feeling it, that additional suffering is on their way. And he tells them, don't fear. And he tells them to be faithful unto death. What an encouragement for a church that was struggling. And I think there's a couple of takeaways here that we absolutely have to note. Again, we have to remember what we're supposed to believe, that we have to ground our understanding of who Christ is and the fact that he controls all of history and He is our Redeemer and our Savior. And because of that, we have some things, some ways that we ought to behave as well. First, individually, and this is not going to be super articulate, do not fear. That's His charge. He says, do not fear. To a church that had everything to be afraid of, that had lost everything, and the only thing left that they could take was their lives. To this church, he says, do not fear. See, I would submit to you that we fear, we fear to lose the things that we haven't really turned over to God. 
think about the things that make you fearful. Think about the things that make you anxious. Think about the things that keep you up at night. What are they? The loss of our health? The loss of our reputation? What will people say about me at work? The loss of our freedom? The loss of your family? The loss of their lives? We fear to lose the things that we have failed to turn over to God. But as Jim Elliott famously is quoted as saying, right? He is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The church at Smyrna could not keep anything in this life. But they gained the one thing that mattered most. And to us, I think Christ says the same thing. Do not fear. Why do we fear? What do we fear? In Matthew, Christ says to his disciples, don't fear the men that can only take away your lives. Fear the God who, after taking away your life, can throw you into hell. There is one thing worth living for, and it's not everything that we see around us in our day-in and day-out lives. Secondarily, what would Christ say to us corporately? Again, not eloquent. Be faithful. As a church, be faithful. What may faithfulness to Christ's gospel and Christ's word cost us in the next 10 years, in the next 50 years? Lord willing, Faith Bible Church will still be around in some form, but it may cost us our building. It may cost us our nonprofit status. It may cost us the ability for all of us to get together at one time. It may cost us the money we have in the bank. It may cost us some of our leadership because that's who they go after first. And to the church, both us and Smyrna, Christ says, be faithful even to the point of death. And I want to stress here that what Christ is not encouraging them to do is just gut it out. Just try harder to not be scared. Just try harder to be faithful. Both of these things are fundamentally grounded in prayer. These are not thoughts and disciplines that we just summon up in our hearts. This is a peace that only God grants. The story is told of during the reign of Bloody Mary, which if you're unfamiliar, Bloody Mary uh, was a queen of England in about 1550 A.D., and she made it her one mission as queen to basically root out the Reformation that was beginning to take hold in England. She's credited with burning about 280 Christians at the stake in her short five-year reign. The story is told of two believers that were put in prison and sentenced to be burned at the stake during Bloody Mary's reign. The one man was, was recognizing that he was about to become a martyr and was confident. I will not renounce Christ. I'm going to be burned at the stake. This is, this, is, this is something I was ready for. The other man found himself sitting in the corner, worried and scared, praying that God would give him the ability to endure the torment that was about to come. And the confident man would berate the weak man, saying, what's wrong with your faith? Why aren't you strong enough to endure? Until the next day, and they walk out the gate. And the man who was so sure the night before that he had the courage to endure the flames recanted and went home. 
And the man who had humbly been asking that God would give him the power to endure in that moment was burnt at the stake. It's not a proud confidence in our own ability to endure the trials God is putting in our lives. It's a prayerful submission saying, God, remind me of who you are and remind me of the fact that the next life is what I'm living for, not this one. So he wraps up this letter after telling them this hard but real news by giving them one final assurance. Look at verse 11. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. His assurance to the church at Smyrna is precisely what the church needed to hear. He who has an ear to hear, we talked about this last week, but by way of review, that's Christ's way of saying there's two ways to respond to this. Those with open ears positively respond, and those with closed ears negatively respond. To he who has an ears to hear, to he who would hear this message and respond and obey, to the one who conquers. We talked about how conquers doesn't mean this, self, this self-aggrandizement that they're conquering, but it means to participate in Christ's victory. Ironically, and specifically here, it means to follow Christ to the grave. To be like, you know, Christ would say, <laughs> that a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you too. And in Smyrna, that meant literally they were going to follow Christ to the grave. He says, but to the one who conquers, the reward will be they will not be hurt by the second death. What an incredible encouragement to the church at Smyrna. The second death throughout the book of Revelation speaks to eternal death not the physical death we experience in this life, it's the eternal separation in hell from God. And he says, to the one who endures, to the one who conquers, to the one who is faithful to me, you will not be harmed by the second death, the death that really matters. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said it this way, nowhere does the New Testament promise freedom from suffering in this life despite what any number of TV preachers will tell you. Indeed, without the cross, there will be no crown. But what God does guarantee is that though the church may suffer even the death of the body, she will not suffer the death of the soul. That's the assurance. That's the commitment that Christ makes to his church. They may rip everything you have from you in this world, but they cannot take the one thing that matters most. Your name being written in the book of life. And I think this is a good encouragement for us as well. As we ask the question, in addition to what we should believe and how we should behave, how do we endure? As a 21st century church, In Lincoln, Nebraska today, how do we endure until Christ returns at the end of Revelation? What is the path forward? This brings us back to our original question, does it not? Would I be willing to die for Christ? How do I know if I would be willing to die for my Savior? Two things. First, individually, and then corporately. First, individually, choose to die today. 
I don't mean in some sort of strange, grotesque way where we pursue death. That's not what believers are called to. As long as we're in this life, we're called to be faithful to what God has given us to do this day. What I mean is choose to die to the things of this world today. Choose ahead of time to put to death our our grasp on those things that we cannot truly hold on to, those things that won't endure the first death. Too often we tend to think that at the moment when we really have to make that call about whether we live or die for Christ, in that moment we'll get serious about our faith. but we don't live for Christ day in and day out. We don't sacrifice the things that it takes to be a follower of Christ day in and day out. And then we think, maybe in that moment I'll get serious about my faith. I would submit to you that if Christ isn't worth our time, if he's not worth our money, if he's not worth our attention, if he's not worth our passion today, he won't be worth our life if we should ever face that reality someday. Choose to die today. In David Platt's book, Follow Me, that some of you have already said that you've been reading through after Tom passed them out a few weeks ago, in the first chapter, which many of you have probably already read, David Platt recalls the story of talking to a young lady he calls Ayan. She's from a Muslim background. She's asking questions about what it means to be a believer. He says, what should you tell her when she asks, how do I become a Christian? He says this, you have two options in your response to Ian. You can tell her how easy it is to become a Christian. If Ian will simply assent to certain truths and repeat a particular prayer, she can be saved. That's all it takes. Your second option is to tell Ian the truth. You can tell Ian that in the gospel, God is calling her to die literally, to die to her life, to die to her family, to die to her friends, to die to her future, and in dying, to live, to live in Jesus, to live as a part of a global family that includes every tribe, to live with friends who span every age, to live in a future where joy lasts forever. That is what it means to follow Christ. That is Christ's words to the church in Smyrna and to us individually. Living for Christ means being willing to die. Choose to die today. Secondarily, what does it mean for us corporately as a church? How do we endure as a church? I would say we need to pray for boldness and faithfulness in the church both here and around the world. We can become convinced that in our own strength, we're doctrinally sound enough like the church at Ephesus. We're strong enough. Whatever, we're enough. All of that misses the point that without Christ, every single one of us is fearful and faithless. Pray for boldness for us as a church and for faithfulness and for the church around the world. We miss in our Western culture the fact that so many churches elsewhere around the globe face daily persecution, where to claim the name of Christ is a death sentence if anyone finds out. 
pray for our, our brothers and sisters. Imagine what they must be feeling reading this passage in their Bibles. And so in keeping with that, I want to wrap up our message here today by asking Dave, one of our elders here at Faith Bible Church, to come up here and I want him to pray this prayer for us as a church and for the church around the world, that we would have the, the faith and the patience to endure and to be faithful, just like Smyrna. I asked myself, what, what threat is my faith to anybody else? Why would they persecute me? And I think of governments around the world who want control of people. Some of those governments tie themselves to religions, and those religions bring credibility and control to that government. And anybody who doesn't adhere to that religion is a threat. Other governments have no religious ties and want no religious ties. They are to be worshipped. They are to be relied upon for all things. And anybody who relies upon a higher power than them is a threat. So you can understand just with those two explanations why persecution happens around the world. If I told you that 40 million Christians around the world live in countries and areas where they're persecuted, you would be amazed. How about if I told you there are 340 million Christians around the world? We can't leave them. We need to spend a few minutes praying for them and also finding out how God would have us minister to them. 4,400 Christians last year died for their faith. 4,300 Christians were put in prison with no trial, no charges, just put in prison for their faith. 4,500 churches around the world were attacked last year in some way or another because they were Christian churches. We are so blessed and so isolated from that kind of persecution that it's easy to forget what's going on around the world. So I would ask you to pray with me as I lift these people up who love the Lord. See if I can get through this. Let's pray. Lord, we lift your name above all other names, and we know that you see and help your children who are in need. We specifically pray for the millions of believers around the world who are suffering persecution and trials at the hands of those who would try to stamp out the Christian faith. First, Lord, we pray that you would sustain the faith of persecuted Christians in this world so that they might faithfully endure the trials and suffering that they are experiencing that they would not become discouraged, and that by enduring they might bring glory and honor to your name. Second, Lord, we pray for the powerful spreading of your gospel message through persecuted believers. We pray that you would use your words and their faithfulness to bear strong witness of the gospel and bring many more to faith in Christ.
We know that in the power of your spirit, when your people maintain their faith and hope under circumstances that seem hopeless from the world's perspective, it bears strong witness that they are living for something other than this world. In your word, Peter said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day. Third, Lord, we pray that you would supernaturally make it possible for believers in persecuted areas to experience the blessing of gathering together for worship. We pray that they would be able to meet regularly for fellowship, and we pray that you would provide leaders who are equipped to teach and encourage those who are being persecuted. Fourth, Lord, we pray that you would give persecuted pastors an overflowing measure of courage biblical wisdom and spirit-filled joy as they boldly proclaim the gospel and exhort their people to hold fast to Christ. Fifth Lord, we pray that you would put an end to the violence. Put an end to the intimidation and other forms of persecution aimed at silencing persecuted believers. Sixth, we pray that Bibles and other resources would be made available to persecuted believers. We pray that in spite of government and religious restrictions and prohibitions, you would supernaturally supply your people everywhere with all the resources they need for growth and encouragement in their walk. Seventh and finally, Lord, we pray that you would provide for the physical needs of persecuted believers. Most of all, we pray that you would help them look beyond their present trials and persecutions and rejoice in the great reward which all believers can eagerly look forward to, which is described in Revelation 7, 15 through 17, which says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We pray these things in the strong and blessed name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. You're dismissed.